to introduce you this morning to another lady, a third lady. It's Ladies' Day this morning, must be. And it's amazing how you can think that you know someone until you actually hear their story. And I thought I knew Lisa quite well and I was getting to know Maggie and then when I heard their stories, I realised there was a whole other depth to them that I knew nothing about. And uh, the lady I want to introduce you to today, I don't actually know her name, nobody does, but I think she's intelligent and she's funny and she's well worth getting to know. Jesus had a lot of time for this lady and so I think we should too. You may in fact already know her or at least know of her. She's the Samaritan woman whom Jesus met at the well. Yes, she's that woman. The woman whom Jesus correctly identified as having had five husbands and the man she was currently with, he said, was not her husband. She has been much maligned over the years as an adulteress and her encounter with Christ is often held up as a picture of God's grace towards sinners. But have we ever really taken time to get to know this lady? For her story, I think, is as deep and as rich as the well from which she draws water. And I pray and I have prayed this week that her encounter with Jesus will enrich your lives today as we explore it together. So if you would turn with me to John chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. John 4, 1 to 26. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptising more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptised, but his disciples. So he left Judea, which we can see is down here, and he went back once more to Galilee, which you'll see is up the top, up there. So he came, and now he had to go through Samaria which is in the middle. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, said the woman, you have nothing to draw water with and this well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, 
who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and also his livestock? Jesus answered her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have had no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, called Christ, is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now, who was this woman at the well to whom Jesus felt at liberty to give one of the greatest teachings in all of the Bible? We're going to see what we can piece together about her from what little we're told about her in this passage. And the first seemingly insignificant fact that we are told about her is that she came to draw water at the well about noon, midday. And these four little words tell a whole story in themselves, for no one would travel to a well and willingly choose to lug heavy jars of water back in the heat of the midday sun. This was a task that was usually done in the cool of the morning, or if needed, in the cool of the evening. It wasn't done in the middle of the day when the sun was at its hottest. And meeting at a well was usually the high point of a woman's social life for the day because women gather and they talk and you have to wait for someone else, you have to wait for your turn. And so meeting at the well offered an opportunity to catch up with everything that was happening in the community. It was not something a woman would usually choose to avoid. But our woman comes alone. She comes at a time when she knows that no one else will be there. For whatever reason, she wants to avoid the crowd. Now, the second thing that we know about her is 
what she herself tells us. She says she's a Samaritan woman, a Samaritan and a woman, which in that culture was a dreadful double whammy, which makes Jesus' interaction with her at the well so culturally wrong on so many levels. See, the Samaritans were a racially mixed group of people. They had Jewish and pagan ancestry. And they were despised by ordinary Jews because of this mixed background and because of their part pagan worship. However, the religion of the Samaritans was similar in many respects to the Jews. They accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, although they did not recognise the prophets and the wisdom literature. They observed many of the same feasts that the Jews observed. And like the Jews, they longed for the coming of the Messiah. Now, there was a very long history of animosity going back between the Samaritans and the Jews, and it goes right back to when the northern kingdom of Israel was invaded by Assyria in 722 BC. And during this time, most of the Jews were driven out of that part of Israel, and the Assyrians brought in foreigners to replace them. And the foreigners brought with them their foreign gods, and they intermarried with those Jews that remained. And these people were forevermore viewed by the Jews as some form of biological half-caste, following an imperfect form of Judaism. And these people were the Samaritans. And years later, when the Jews were rebuilding Jerusalem after their own exile to Babylon, the Samaritans approached the Jews, and they offered their assistance. They said, let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God, and we've been sacrificing to him. And this is all recorded for us in the book of Ezra. But the Jews' response to the Samaritans was not quite so welcoming. They said, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord. And so the Samaritans responded by doing whatever they could to frustrate the efforts of the Jews in rebuilding. And several hundred years before the birth of, the, of Christ, the Samaritans built their own temple on their own mountain, Mount Gerizim, in their own territory. And it was here that they offered their own sacrifices according to Mosaic law. Now their temple only stood for 200 years. The Jews destroyed it in 128 BC and that only served to further deepen the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. And Jews would often go to great lengths to avoid going through Samaritan territory. But Jesus had no such qualms. He was happy to head right through the middle of Samaria. Now, the Jewish attitude to women was also less than ideal, and it had certainly fallen a long way from the high regard with which women were held in the Old Testament. Some Jewish men even started the day with a prayer 
thanking God that they were neither Gentile, slave, or a woman. Jewish men didn't talk to women in public, and the rabbis didn't even believe that women were worth educating in the scriptures. Samaritan women had an even lower status. They were a lower class of low. And so Jesus challenges all of the socially accepted norms on so many fronts when he speaks to the woman at the well who approaches him. And then, of course, he proceeds to steer the conversation to spiritual matters with her. Now, Jesus asks the woman to go and call her husband, to which the woman replies that she has no husband. And Jesus confirms that, indeed, she has no husband, but she's had five husbands, and the one she now lives with is not her husband. And we, with our 21st century Christian goggles on, automatically read into this passage immorality and shame and disgrace into this woman's situation. But it need not be so. For there is no possibility at all in the culture of the time that this woman had initiated the divorce of five men because legally women were not permitted to initiate a divorce under Judaism. And so if, and I say if, if she was divorced, it must have been the men who initiated it. And the most likely reason for that would not have been adultery because they had another way of dealing with adultery. You only have to jump forward to John chapter 8 to see what it was that the, Jew, the Jewish men wanted to do to the woman who was caught in adultery. Women who were caught in adultery would be stoned. As they, they quote, they say, in the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such women. And they asked Jesus, now what do you say? So no woman would have survived being a five-time adulterer. There's no way she would not have been stoned. So it's quite a ridiculous suggestion. If this woman was divorced, then the most likely reason for it would have been probably her inability to produce children. However, if she had been divorced several times, in that patriarchal culture, the likelihood of another man taking her on in marriage would be remote. For it to have happened five times would be so remote as for it to be almost impossible. So it's unlikely that divorce is the reason that this woman, woman has had five husbands. It's far more likely that here we have a woman who's been widowed perhaps multiple times. This was a very real possibility in a culture without all the medical advances that we take for granted today. In fact, instructions that detail the responsibility of a man to marry his childless brother's widow in order for them to produce children to carry on the family line are detailed for God's people for just such a reason in the book of Deuteronomy. And there are examples in other writings of the time. For example, the book of Tobit details uh, a story about a woman who 
had had five husbands die on their wedding night. And you can imagine, just as today, if you've been widowed once or twice, nobody thinks very much of it, but if you'd been widowed five times, men are going to start to wonder. And uh, they're probably not going to be that inclined to, to want to marry you for fear of death. And so if men are afraid to marry you, all of a sudden, in a culture where a woman on her own is very vulnerable, all of a sudden, becoming a concubine becomes a very real possibility. In fact, a very real opportunity. So a woman might live with a man, but have lower status than their wives. Or she might seek guardianship or protection from someone else in her family, another man, perhaps a brother or a, an uncle or a cousin. And so here she comes in the heat of the day alone to draw water from the well. But as she gets there, she sees that she's not, in fact, alone. There's someone else there. And that someone else is a he. Where has he come from? And what's he doing there at the well? Now, there are two ways to get from Judea to Galilee. And the path that was trod by many Jews was this route that skirted around Samaria for all the reasons that we've talked about already. But this was not the route that Jesus chose. Jesus chose to go directly uh, north through Samaria and we're told that he stopped in this region of Sychar. Our text says specifically that he had to go through Samaria. And since Jesus was probably, or, well, probably already somewhere down near the Jordan River where his disciples were baptising, it seems likely that the word that we use had, that he had to go through Samaria, refers not to some sort of physical reason, but perhaps to a spiritual imperative. He had a divine appointment in Samaria. So, tired from the journey, Jesus sits down at the well to rest, already having sent his disciples on to buy food. And that alone speaks volumes, for no Jew would eat food prepared by a Samaritan. Now, the well might have looked something like this. In those days, wells were little more than a hole in the ground with some packed earth around them to prevent animals from falling in and contaminating the water that was in there. Now, Jews and Samaritans both had a great respect for the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And as such, both of them would have known what generally follows when a man meets a woman at a well. You only have to think Isaac and Rebecca, or Isaac's servant and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel, Moses and Zipporah. This might not look like much of a romantic venue, but a man and woman meeting at a well was 
normally a sign that there might be a proposal to follow. And so here they are, Jesus and this much maligned woman from Samaria. Jesus, whom in just the previous chapter, John chapter 3, John has described as the bridegroom. He says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend, which was himself, who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. In other words, John the Baptist is saying, here he is, the bridegroom is here. And what's the first place the Gospel writer John places Jesus after this important announcement of the bridegroom's arrival? It is at a well. And not just any well, John tells us this was the same well where Jacob, the ancestor claimed by both the Jews and the Samaritans, met Rachel. And if that's not enough, to make people sit up and take notice, this meeting at the well takes place unusually at the very same time that Jacob and Rachel met many years earlier at midday in the heat of the noon sun. And so after sending his disciples on to buy food in the town, Jesus asks our woman for a drink. And she wonders at how he can make such a request since Jews and Samaritans do not associate. And Jesus responds, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you the living water. Now, when the Israelites wandered in the desert, water was seen as a gift of God. But the prophets also speak of God himself as the fountain of living water. Now the Jews, who were familiar with the writings of the prophets, but not the Samaritans, remember we said the Samaritans only go by the first five books. So the Jews would have known of God as a spiritual foundation of living water. Take, for example, this passage in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And there are other similar references there, another one from Jeremiah and Isaiah. The prophet Jeremiah rebukes the nation of Israel for their rejection of God, the fountain of living water, and their acceptance of pagan rituals from the surrounding nations. Jeremiah states that instead of accepting the living water, they've chosen to make for themselves cisterns. Now, cisterns were what they used to collect rainwater, but the water in a cistern stagnates. It collects dust, microbes, insects. It's not free-flowing and it stagnates. 
these cisterns were necessary in the harsh climates and the water in them would keep you alive, but it was far more preferable to have a fresh fountain or a spring of water. Further, not only were their actions akin to using the water from cisterns, Jeremiah says the cisterns were broken. They weren't even suitable for holding any sort of water. They'd rejected God and replaced him with empty rituals that had no benefit whatsoever. Now both Jews and Samaritans would have associated water in the desert as a gift of God. But when Jesus speaks of this living water, Jews that knew their scriptures well would have associated this with the fountain of God. And they would have seen this as a very direct claim uh, to divinity by Jesus. The woman goes on, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and this well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did his sons and flocks and herds. And the suggestion here is not only that Jesus replaces Jacob, who represents the patriarchs or the, the forefathers of Israel, but that he is greater than they. And there are many legends about Jacob which were well known at the time of Jesus. And one of these which is associated with Genesis 29, that the account of Jacob meeting Rachel states that five miracles were wrought for our father Jacob at the time that he went forth from Beersheba. And the fourth sign was that the well overflowed and the water rose to the top of it and continued to overflow all the time he was in Haran. So when the Samaritan woman notes that Jesus had nothing to draw water with and the well is deep, the implication is that the only other means that he has to get water from this well would be to perform a miracle similar to Jacob. And Jesus, of course, indeed does perform a miracle. His miracle far surpasses that of Jacob's overflowing well. His gift is salvation, the living waters that well up to eternal life. And so according to the legend of Jacob, this well overflowed all the time he was in Haran. But by his spirit, Jesus is ever present with us and this living water continues to well up and overflow to eternal life. So the answer to the woman's question is yes, yes and yes. Jacob represents the patriarchs. He was chosen by God to lead and guide his people for a set time. Jesus would be the way, the truth and the life for God's people forevermore. Jacob provided water that quenched thirst and sustained life on earth. Jesus provided water that sustains the soul and gives life eternal. Jacob represents the old covenant which was a temporary covenant and was restricted to the Jews. Jesus, like the patriarchs, comes to the well with a proposal, but here he lays out a new covenant. And the very fact that he chooses to make this revelation to a Samaritan and to a woman 
speaks volumes about the type of bride that he has come for. The woman is interested but still not really understanding what Jesus means. She says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And the word that she uses for sir is this word kurios. And the word can have multiple meanings in Greek. It can also mean Lord and it can also mean husband. And so I told you earlier that a man and a woman meeting at a well often meant that a proposal was soon to follow. And here it comes, wrapped up in history and a very clever play on the Greek words. It's not easy for us 21st century readers to spot this, but I think the reaction of the Samaritan woman that we'll come to in a minute indicates that she understood loud and clear. Jesus says in response to her request for his water, go and call your husband and come back. She quickly replies that she has no husband. Now the specific words here that are used for husband are not in fact kurios, the same word by which she addresses Jesus, but nonetheless I think he's using a very clever play on the meaning of these words. By her response that she has no husband, the door is open for Jesus to point out that indeed she's had five husbands and the one she now has is not her husband. On the surface, it looks like he's talking about her marital status, but these words, I have no husband, could also be interpreted to mean I have no Lord. And when we read this through the lens of the history of the Samaritans, which we've already talked about, this statement becomes even richer. You see, after that invasion of the Assyrians and the displacement by the Jews, the Assyrians brought in different groups to resettle um, the town. They brought in people from Babylon, Kuta, Ava, Hamath, Sepharavim, and they settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and they lived in its towns. So in fact, the people from Samaria had one, two, three, four, and five husbands. And all of them brought with them their own gods. The people of Babylon brought Sukkoth Benoth, the people of Kutah brought Nagal, Hamath, Ashima, Ava brought Nibahaz and Tertak, and Sepharavim brought Adremelech and Anamelech. And verse 41 states that while these people were worshipping the Lord, they were serving their idols. And to this day, says the writer of two kings, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their fathers did. So you have five, had five husbands speaks to us at two levels. And it's all the more remarkable in the light of the fact that the one John has just called the bridegroom is now sitting talking with her at the well. Sir, says the woman, I can see you are a prophet. What a brave, intelligent and intuitive woman this woman is. Well, you see, strictly speaking, Samaritans don't believe in prophets. They don't accept the, prophet, the prophetic writings 
But she wants to know more and she senses in Jesus someone who will tell her. You see, the Samaritans had built for themselves their own temple here on Mount Gerizim. And Jacob's well was located here just at the mouth of this mountain pass between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. The Jews had destroyed the Samaritan temple and yet they still claimed that the Samaritans couldn't worship in their own temple in Jerusalem. She wants to know what Jesus makes of this. And by his answer, he treats her like the worthy seeker that she is. Believe me, woman, he says, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation comes from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers that the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. What he says, in effect, is that the temple system, with all of its rites and rituals, will be no more. The old covenant is passing, and true worship will now be found in the very heart, in the core of a person. Jesus, the bridegroom, will gather people and all of their differences and distinctions that have kept them apart for so many years will be no more. For in Jesus Christ, all will be one. And for the first time in her life, she, a Samaritan and a woman, will have as much access to God as any Jew, as any man, as any Pharisee, or as any priest. And so do we. So what of you? Are you still trying to draw water from empty cisterns? by chasing after empty rituals or the things of the world? Or have you tasted, like Maggie and Lisa, of the living water? Is worship something that you feel obliged to do? Is it dull and full of ritual? Or maybe perhaps for you it's all about emotion and about how it makes you feel. And if it doesn't make you feel good, then you don't want to do it. Maybe you're heavy on spirit and light on truth. Or maybe you're all truth and very little spirit, resulting in a dry kind of encounter with God that lacks passion and joy. Jesus says that true worship must be in spirit and in truth. It must engage the whole heart and be properly informed by a right understanding of God. Or as John Piper puts it, True worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God, rooted in truth, are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. And so as we reach the end of our journey with this Samaritan woman this morning, we've seen her grow in her understanding of who this man is that offers her living water from being just another Jew to Lord and prophet and now after her declaration that she knows the Messiah is coming Jesus reveals his full identity saying I the one who speaks to you am he 
you know, it's been my privilege in recent months to walk part of this journey with our baptismal candidates today as they've come to know Jesus and to embrace the living water that he offers. And I look forward to watching those streams of living water flowing out from within them. For as Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And John adds for our understanding, by this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Ladies, the Spirit of God is active in both of you already. May nothing hinder his flow. Amen. The Caroline. As someone said, uh, you have truth or word without spirit. Uh, you have all word without spirit, you dry up. You have all spirit without word, you blow up. But if you have word and spirit, you grow up. How's that? Amen? Let's uh, stand, shall we, as we close this time of uh, worship with this beautiful chorus. Endless hallelujah as we look to the future.
in a great chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13 that we are all familiar with and you close off with this now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror then we shall see face to face now I know in part then I shall know fully even as I am fully known and now these three remain faith, hope and love but the greatest of this is love. Thank you for the beautiful story of the Samaritan woman. Thank you that you came and ushered in a completely new covenant where every barrier that has prevented people coming to you has been broken. And you came to us in truth and you came to us in word, in person that we receive you as your, our Savior and Lord. The Holy Spirit descend and lives in us empowering us to live for you thank you lord go into the world as living stones stones which are who are uniquely beautiful in all the creation stones make beautiful by the harshness of the journey stones which make ripples in the ponds of our workplace, our family, politics, in every area. Stones which cause the evil ones to trip and fall. Stones which God is using to build a temple of love for all who long for justice. Thank you, Lord. May God the Father, God the Son, and God the amazing, empowering Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.